O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. So you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we approach this psalm yet one more time, Father, as we continue to search the treasures and riches that are uh, in this sacred hymn. Father, we ask for your blessing that, Lord, you would teach us and lead us and guide us. In your precious name we pray. Amen and amen. Psalm 8 speaks so powerfully to the subject of human dignity that I don't believe that we could really teach or preach Psalm 8 and not touch human dignity and then at the end of the day say we have done justice to Psalm 8. I mean, look at verse 4. We, we looked at it last week. It asks a, a question of immeasurable significance when it says, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And last week we began to explore this question. We considered a couple of contemporary answers that are given to the question, what is man? And we saw that uh, to the materialist, man is just a body. And we're, just a, we're just bodies. Uh, I used the phrase bag of chemicals uh, last week as another common way that we're uh, referred to that uh, uh, what we experience and uh, everything that we go through is this uh, uh, really complex and elaborate uh, uh, reactions of various chemicals and what have you. And of course, much of that is much of that is true, but that's not um, uh, that's not the whole truth. Uh, some answer the question that what we are is high functioning uh, animals that we're, we're we're animals like the rest of creation. We're just a, a little higher functioning. And we saw that historically some have answered that man is a soul. Uh, man is a soul. And uh, now uh, I think that I should say something and I should give you a reason as to, uh, to some of you that it's clear why I'm making such a fuss of this, but in the event that it's not clear, and I, I don't like to assume that I'm clear. Every time I assume that I'm clear, I find out that I'm not so clear. Uh, so let me make this really, really clear why am I making such a fuss out of this? Well, I'll give you several reasons. Um, some of you have watched the news, and a week ago Saturday, at a wedding in Turkey, has anyone heard that story? At a wedding in Turkey, um, I, I forget, and reports are conflicted about the age of this child, whether he's 12 or 14, I'm not sure we know for sure, but um, he uh, went into a wedding celebration with a bomb vest on. And uh, when the bomb vest was detonated, the young, 
this young uh, child not only lost his life, but it took the life of 54 people who were celebrating at the wedding and it wounded uh, 70 others. And, uh, you, you know, you hear these things on the news. I mean, uh, who would suspect a, a child? I would assume that given that many people wounded, there probably was, I don't know how many people were at this wedding. Uh, we have to assume there was a hundred or more people at the wedding. Um, you're at a wedding festivity and you see a 12 or 14 year old uh, boy, you wouldn't think nothing of it, would you? You know, you might not even say, whose boy is that? I don't know what you would say, but um, only 24 hours later from that incident, uh, police apprehended a 12-year-old boy who was concealing a bomb vest under a, a sports shirt in the uh, oil-rich city of Kirkuk, which is in northern uh, Iraq. And uh, uh, apparently the youth was planning to blow himself up in a Shia mosque. Now, the reports that I read of this are conflicted. Some reports seem to indicate that he had been abducted and this was something that he was doing uh, uh, unwillingly. It was beyond his uh, control. Uh, other reports seem to indicate that he was doing this willingly. Uh, reports suggested that he was part, a member of a so-called group known as the Cubs of the Caliphate. Has anybody ever heard of that group, Cubs of the Caliphate? Uh, the caliphate is a uh, is a, in essence an Islamic state. We've all heard the uh, the term ISIS. I S I S. The first I S stands for Islamic State. Uh, it's established by it's it's a caliphate. It's established by a caliph. In Islamic thought, a caliph is a successor to uh, Muhammad, and he uh, he has uh, uh, really practically unlimited authority in the Muslim world. And ISIS, the first IS stands for Islamic State. That would be the caliphate. The second IS stands for Iraq and Syria. So it's the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Now, the Cubs of the Caliphate are this group of children that are being trained to be fighting machines. Uh, they're being indoctrinated in military doctrine. and They're learning military tactics. And... Uh, uh, we sometimes look at this and we ask the question, how can, uh, first of all, how can, how can kids do this stuff? And how can, even more uh, culpable, how can, uh, how can men do this stuff? And I can see the looks on some of your faces. You love kids. You hear about this stuff and you think, how in the world, how in the world can this take place? Well, there's, there's lots of answers to this, but I would suggest that really the, 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 the primary issue, the fundamental issue here is that we can do really monstrous things to one another once we have depersonalized each other, once we have dehumanized each other. It's well known that it's a common military tactic. When militaries are being trained, that uh, you have to quit thinking of the enemy as a person, you have to think of the enemy uh, as the enemy. You have to think of the enemy as a target. You see the depersonalization that's taking place there, the dehumanization that is taking place there. Some will, some will look at all of this and say, well, these, these, they're just acting like animals. They're animals. Not so quick. You know, name one animal that's ever done something like that. 
there, there's never been an animal that has done anything like that. Uh, I don't think we should even suggest that. No, people are being depersonalized, being dehumanized. Uh, and once you're depersonalized, once you're dehumanized, you're not safe. You're simply not safe. That's one of the points I want to make this morning. And here we see why human dignity is so important. I mean, the concept of human dignity is crucial to any concept that we might have of personhood, isn't it? Of personhood. I, uh, you know, let me say it another way. Human dignity is related to how we answer the question of what makes a person a person. Have you ever thought about what makes a person a person? You know, what makes a person a person? Is it embracing a certain ideology? That once you embrace a certain ideology, you become a person? Is that the answer? If it is the answer, what happens if you don't embrace that ideology? That seems to be the question that's at hand right now. Uh, of course, uh, you know, as I, I, I could call out some other examples, I think some of you might be thinking of abortion and euthanasia. Those are certainly examples here. Uh, that would uh, would make this so very important. Let me offer another example. I mean, who would disagree that our technological advances? I mean, our technological advances are astounding. I mean, who would disagree that our technology is advancing at a faster pace than our wisdom is? I don't think anyone would want to disagree with that. And how can we answer complicated, the complicated questions related to stem cell research, related to uh, 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 gene modification? Have you heard of gene modification? Where, you know, there's an attempt made to, to uh, make perfect children, you know, super babies. You can make them look a certain way. And you want those Paul Newman eyes? You want to see those Paul Newman eyes? We can do that. We can make that happen. Um, how do we answer questions related to that? On the electronics, uh, the advancement of electronics, you know, there's electronics, these little chips that you can put in people's brains to enhance their thinking or their various performance. I mean, how do we, how do we answer these kinds of questions? I'm bring, bringing this up because, quite frankly, the church has a tendency to be completely asleep through these things, and we don't wake up to them until it's way too late, until it's all over with. And perhaps, perhaps these issues are already all over with. I don't know. But nevertheless, I think we need to discuss them, and I think the first step in our discussion needs to be settling this issue of personhood. Settling the issue of personhood. I mean, what makes a person a person? Look at Psalm 8, 4, and 5 with me again. Now the question, we can't look at it enough. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, we saw last time that Psalm 8 is really recalling the creation account. I think you can see that, especially if you look at Psalm, if you look at verses 6, 7, and 8, uh, you can see the, the recall of uh, Genesis 1. And if you turn there with me, keep your place in Psalm 8 and turn to Genesis 1. I want to revisit verse 26 through 28 this morning uh, to start off with. These are verses we need to get very familiar with if we're not already very familiar with them. 
Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, let's note a couple of things here before we move on. One, that man has been made in the image of God. You see that, right? Very clear. Verse 26, verse 27. Last time we we spent a little bit of time on that subject. Secondly, we see that man has been given dominion over the earth. Third, we see that man has been created male and female. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks ahead. And fourth, man has been ordered, ordered to be fruitful and multiply. Now, with those thoughts in mind, turn to the next chapter. Turn to chapter 2. And let's go a little further looking at verses 4 through 7. Chapter 2, starting with verse 4 for context purposes. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now look with me to verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now, in verse 7, we're told that God picked up some dust from the ground and he fashioned it into a body. And then he breathed into the nostrils of this dust and it became a living being correct no now for sure i mean god is a spirit you know he doesn't have body parts god is a spirit we're told god is a spirit he doesn't have hands uh, yet psalm 8 which we've been studying says that he fashioned the world the heavens with his fingers uh, elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that God does these things with a strong, outstretched arm. Uh, different places of the Bible uh, suggest that God has these body parts. We need to understand that what God is doing here is he is trying to teach truth to us in a way that is perceptible to us. But quite frankly, I look at this, this the mechanics of this are, I think, beyond any of us to understand. How is it that God could take dust from the earth and then breathe uh, light, breathe uh, uh, his spirit into it and become a, a man? How can that happen? Uh, I think that's beyond our ability. It's elusive to us, isn't it? Uh, but God is, uh, God is teaching us many things by speaking what some theologians call baby talk. He's talking baby talk to us. You know, sometimes when we're trying to communicate to young children, we speak in ways that they can understand and and uh, we, we simplify things. They would be oversimplified uh, to an adult. But uh, in order to convey what we're trying to convey to children, 
we speak in a, a, a different way. On Wednesday nights, I attempt to do that. I don't speak the same way uh, to our children on Wednesday nights as I do to the rest of the group. Um, uh, you can't. Um, what is God doing here? He's speaking, as some have said, he's speaking baby talk to us. He's speaking baby talk to us. The technical term for what's going on here is anthropomorphic language. We call it anthropomorphic language. The word anthropos is a Greek word for humanity, if you will. So it's anthropomorphic language. If you run into that word sometime when you're reading literature, you'll, you'll know what it's, what it's about. Uh, so here, let's look at it a little bit further. I mean, clearly we see, as we look at verse 7, that the animating principle in the creation of man is what verse 7 calls the breath of God, isn't it? The breath of God. And this is God's way of saying to us that the life-giving element, you know, which we enjoy, that life-giving animation that we enjoy is, is directly from God himself. It's directly from God himself. And here we have an earthly element, the dust, right? And we have a heavenly element, don't we? The breath of God. So you see in this, in this context, I can start to see why the psalmist would say, you know, you've created us a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've created us a little lower than the heavenly beings. We have this earthly element and we have this divine element as well, don't we? Uh, so to speak. Uh, don't, don't press what I'm saying too, too far. I'm not saying that we're a bunch of little gods running around. We think we are. That's our problem. Uh, but there is a heavenly aspect uh, to humanity, isn't there? You follow me? just want to make sure that we can go on. Okay. Um, God breathes into the corpse of dust and it becomes a, a living person. So, you know, we're, we're more than a bag of chemicals, aren't we? And we're also more than a soul. You know, we're, we're a body-soul unity. Man is body, man is soul. I mean, for the purpose of analysis... We can think of the body and we can think of the soul. We can, we can make these distinctions, but I want to I I suggest that we need to be making a little more caution about this than what we're currently used to, of making a body, uh, of making this dichotomy between body and soul. We need to recognize that we're, uh, that we're actually a uh, body-soul unity. Now, let me, give you an, let me give you an illustration why I think this is so important. And what I'm about to say pertains to this life. It doesn't pertain to as we go through the, the doorway of death into the next life. But as far as this life is concerned, you know, every time I go to the eye doctor, maybe you have the same experience when you go to the eye doctor. Usually on the wall somewhere at the eye doctor's office is a big eyeball, right? You've been there and you see the big eyeball. Um, okay, that has always fascinated me. I mean, the human eye is something I find to be so fascinating. How is it that this organism can capture all these images, you know, all the light, all the various frequencies, light is, light is frequencies, capturing all these frequencies, capture, capturing all this movement, and then taking that in, and uh, putting it into what I assume is some kind of small electrical signal that goes to the brain, and then 
we have the ability to perceive what we're looking at. I mean, we take all of this for granted so, so very often. Isn't it marvelous that we can see and perceive what we're seeing? Secular humanist thought often wants us to, wants to suggest that all of this has happened by way of an explosion. I just talked about an explosion. Um, when that boy's bomb vest went off, it didn't create life, it destroyed it. It didn't put things in order, it made a big mess. And thank goodness the second attempt was, was uh, stopped before it could take place. Explosions make messes, they don't make things like this work. How, how wonderfully complex this is. And, and now let's go a little deeper with this. As we think about the body-soul unity, where does the work of the eyeball stop and the work of the human, the work of the, the, the inner person pick up? Have you ever thought about that? The eye sees the image the image enters into the eye. It does what it does to, to capture the image, uh, converts it to whatever it's going to be converted to, and sends it to the brain, and somehow, somehow it's communicated to our inner person, the very seed of perception. Uh, we might call our, our heart, if you will. We'll look at that in a couple of minutes. But my question is, where does the eye... How far does the eye take this? Where The eye actually isn't really doing the seeing, is it? Does the eye see by itself? No. The eye is part of the seeing. If the eye is, is damaged in an accident, well, then sight can be rendered impossible, right? We can become blind if we're injured. Now, my point is we're a unity. The inner person can't function in this life without the eye. He or she has to have the eye, you see. You can't do it without the eye. In the next life, that's why I'm, I'm limiting this. In the next life, if we depart from this life before Christ returns and we enter into what we call the intermediary state, then we'll be able to see uh, as a disembodied soul. We know this from different passages of the Scripture. But in this life, that's not the case. In this life, if your eyes are put out, you can't see. Or if there's a disease in your eyes, it can render you blind or hardly able to see. And in fact, as, you know, as we get older, you know, we need these things, some of us. Um, actually, my eyes have been improving over the years. I, I, from what I understand, it has something to do with the way your eyes are shaped. And it makes sense. I mean, if you look at lenses, the way they're shaped affects things, you know. Uh, but again, the question is, where does the, where does the work of the eyes stop and the work of the inner person, the work of our inner life pick up. I think that's completely elusive. But the point that I want to make is that we are a unity, aren't we? Uh, our souls require the body. The body uh, certainly requires the soul. So we are a unity. Um, same thing could be said of, of uh, feeling. The same thing could be said of, of uh, hearing. Uh, does the ear do the hearing? I think it's the inner person that does the hearing, but it can't do it without the ear, correct? Does that make sense? If there was any physicians in here right now, they'd probably say, Rick, I you need to step aside a minute. Maybe let me take over. And I would say, you know, I'll be happy to I'll be right over here. You, you do the talking. But I think you get the gist of what I'm trying to say, don't you? 
Now, where I'm heading with this is that there's an inner person in which this information reaches. There's an inner person, and it is this inner person that perceives, discerns, identifies, and reacts to what uh, we see and what we feel, correct? And the scriptures speak of this. I mean, the seed of this activity is what we call the inner self or the ego. In the Hebrew, it's called the heart. The leib is the word that's used. The heart. I'll just give you a couple of passages. One we looked at a few weeks ago in Psalm 4 and verse 7. It says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You have put more joy uh, in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Okay, when we think of a heart today, we often think of, uh, you know, that pump, you know, that pumps, uh, again, a physician in the room would be, uh, some of you are probably thinking, this is abominable, right? I'm not a physician. But the heart, it pumps, it pumps blood through our veins, you know and uh, sees to it that our body gets everything that it needs. And we a lot of times think of the heart that way. But we also, even in common use, speak of the heart as the inner self too. We use a phrase very often, my heart's not into it. My heart's not into it. Oftentimes we're using that phrase when we're about to quit doing something. But we use that phrase, my heart isn't in it. I'm in it, my heart isn't in it. Here we see... That the psalmist is saying, you've put more joy in my what? In my heart, in my inner person than they have when their grain and wine abound. So here we see it's the, the heart is this place where we experience the joy. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And again, here the heart is the place where we make decisions and, and where it's where we love. Uh, it's where we make commitments. Love is largely a commitment to another person, isn't it? I'm committed to you. I'm deeply committed to you. Uh, where does that take place? It takes place in the inner self, in the person, in the heart, if you will. Here's another really interesting text that's along these lines. In Isaiah 29 and verse 13, you don't need to turn there, just listen. This, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Uh, this would certainly be a, a, an example of uh, the heart not being into it, if you will. The body's involved. And of course, the, the, the animating principle, the inner self is involved in animating the body, but uh, the joy and... Uh, uh, the excitement, if you will, the worship, the adoration is not taking place. And it's an, it's an indictment against the people of God for attempting to worship him simply by going through the motions. I mean, um, and, and I point this to your, uh, really your attention uh, to say that it is this inner life, this God-breathed essence, if you will. Think of back Genesis 2-7 again, God breathing and to the, the dusty corpse and it becoming a living being. It is this inner life that God's interested in, isn't it? That's the inner life that God is interested in. It's, it's what he's interested in, in fellowshipping with. Now, um, this, I believe, comes to the very heart of what it means to be created in the image of God. I mean, last week I said that man has been created by God in covenant relationship with God for a specific purpose for God. Um, 
you know, we've been created to have fellowship with him, haven't we? Now, we have broken this covenant. We've rebelled against this covenant. But the image, what we called last week, the Imago Dei, the image of God has not been destroyed. There are some who teach that it has, but we can easily demonstrate from the scriptures that it has not been destroyed in the fall. Every human being that you look at is an image bearer of God. Uh, No matter how nice they are, no matter how nasty they are, they're an image bearer of God. The image has been fractured, but it's not been taken away. In fact, Psalm 8 and verse 4 to 5 demonstrated in part. This is not where I would go if I was trying to demonstrate this in a debate. I'd go to Genesis 9, 6 and Genesis 5, 1 and 2. But just look for back to Psalm 8, 4. You probably don't even need to look there because we're studying this so carefully that hopefully you're committing this to memory. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, this is given many years after the fall. And it's being recognized by the psalmist and the singing congregation that uh, mankind has been crowned with glory and honor. Now, the image of God has been fractured in the fall, but has not been uh, destroyed. In other words, by virtue of the image of God, uh, we have dignity. We, We have personhood. And this is the crucial link to human dignity. I mean, the problem we have in secular humanistic thought, and remember uh, a few weeks ago when I talked about that, remember that secular humanistic thought is this idea that man is the measure of all things. You remember that discussion? Man is the measure of all things, and uh, there's no God, there's no eternity, there's no revelation from God, there's no Bible. Uh, there's just what we can see, what we can measure, what we can taste, what we can touch, what we can feel, what we can conduct scientific experiments with. That's all that's left. And in, in secular thought, attempts are made to establish human dignity, and they're done uh, really by looking at man and his relation to this earth. And I mean, really common answers boil down to really function. It really boils down to uh, function. Uh, For example, some say a person does not become a person until he or she is able to be consciously aware that they exist. A person does not become a person until they're consciously aware that they exist. Or uh, others will say a person doesn't become a person until they can experience suffering or joy. We don't become a person until we can experience suffering or joy. Um, or a person does not become a person until uh, they can demonstrate rationality to a certain degree. You can see where this is going. A person doesn't uh, become a person until they can function at a level of XXX and fill in the blank. Now, um, the logic breaks down to this. The higher the capacity for functioning, the greater the dignity. You see, we're looking around at the rest of the world. What distinguishes us from the rest of the world? Well, we're higher functioning. Okay, uh, by virtue of being higher functioning, we have, uh, we have dignity. So the logic, the principle behind this is the higher the function, the greater the dignity. Now, what happens to this principle when it's applied to other human beings? You know, the higher the capacity for learning, reasoning, experiencing, etc., the greater the dignity. 
Well, then the genius is more dignified than a person of common, ordinary education, right? If you're just an average, you know, Joe like me, well, you're not as dignified as a genius over here, correct? Or if, you know, if you're not quite as good at functioning in, in way X, then you're not as dignified. Um, the healthy and strong are more dignified than the sick and the aged. This is dangerous stuff. This is very dangerous stuff. I mean, if this is the definition of person, you and I aren't safe. We're not safe. We're not safe from each other. You see, we really can't live without God. You see, this whole idea of trying to live and function in life without God, we're going to destroy each other. That's what we're going to do. We're already doing it. We're absolutely going to destroy each other. The scripture says, no, 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 no. A human being does not become a human being by function or performance. It points back to Genesis 1. It points back to Genesis 2. God formed us out of, out of dust and then he, he breathed into us. He breathed into humanity and humanity became living. Our dignity does not rest in ourselves, you see. If we're looking at each other and we're looking at the rest of the world and we're trying to establish dignity, we're going to fail. We're going to destroy one another. Dignity cannot be obtained that way. We have to look to God for dignity. What makes us dignified? He breathed life into us, creating us in his image. And, uh, it, you know, we have dignity whether we're perfectly healthy or if we were born without hearing, without the ability to speak, without the ability to talk, without the ability to do anything, but, be, but, but just lay there and be cared for for however many days have been given to us by Almighty God. You see, a person in that condition has dignity because he or she is a person, because God has breathed his life into that person. You can see the relevance this has for abortion, the relevance that it has for uh, the fetus and whatever uh, stage it might be in. A healthy person has dignity. A person suffering has dignity. A person severely mental disorder has dignity. Black, yellow, red, white, blue, orange, whatever color he or she is, has dignity. And this great truth will change the way you look at people. I know I've been I've really been blessed studying this stuff. You know, for the last few weeks, I've really enjoyed studying this stuff because I'll tell you. You know, it's easy to it's easy to love people that are nice to you. It's easy to love people that, you know, that think like you do and are on the same page as you. But, but what what happens when you're talking to somebody and man, they're just not so nice to you? You know, I mean, in fact, they're they're quite rude to you. Or, um, how do you do that? Well, here's a way to do it. That person has dignity. You know, the nice guys have dignity and so do the not-so-nice guys. We all have dignity. This great truth, I mean, will fill our hearts with concern for the welfare. I mean, that's really where we've got to go in order to demonstrate Christ, you see. It's not... It, 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 the, the world is very good at loving people that love them back. But what the world can't do is love people who don't love them. Not in the way that we're being called to. That's what turned the world upside down is when people were being, were being persecuted, they continued to still love. 
And this is a powerful antidote towards that. I want to conclude with one last thought. I realize this is a pretty heady message, but it's one we got to wrestle with. And the one last thought I want to conclude with is, what would, how would Psalm 8 go if the psalmist and the singers would have beheld Jesus? They say, when I look at your heavens, which your fingers have made, and the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? What if it would have went? When I look at Jesus, the great I am in the flesh, what is man that you're mindful of him? And what if they would have seen the crucifixion of Jesus? What is man? That God is so mindful of us. Who are we that God is so mindful of us? The Son of Man, that He should care for us. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to work through this material. Father, help us. If we have to listen to it again and again and again, I know I have had to review it so many times. Father, some of us are hearing this for the first time, and their heads probably are spinning. We're probably full a long time ago. Father, I pray, give us the ability. Give us the ability to to see this and perceive this, to understand this, to come and to know this. Fill our hearts, O Father, uh, with this crucial link to human dignity of which without human dignity being established in you, O Father, we recognize we're not safe. Not a one of us is safe. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased, Father, uh, to give us understanding of these things. If we should have to study this stuff for a while, which I know we will, Father, give us the, uh, give us the desire and the, um, give us what we need to do so, O oh Lord. And that, Father, we would have a message for this world that our human dignity is not... Uh, We can't find it by looking at each other or looking at the rest of the world, nor by comparing ourselves to the rest of the world, nor by comparing ourselves to one another. But we see that we are are dignified because of you, O Father, and our dignity rests in you. To these uh, things, Father, we, we say amen and amen.